Have I got a message for you this morning? Today we're going to talk about being good to your leaders, respecting them, loving them. I love this bit. This is my favourite bit. We're going to talk about relationships, having holy attitudes, and we're going to even have a bit of a workshop in the gifts of the Spirit, what it means to, to hear prophetic words, to speak from the Spirit. So we're going to do that too. So get ready. That's my subject. Get ready. Get ready. Now tell me, who's hosting Christmas for the family this year? Oh, we've got a few this morning. Good on you. Well done. Congratulations. I wouldn't have a bar of that. <laughs> when we host Christmas families, oh, we spend, who oh, am I kidding? Ali spends days preparing food and cleaning and cooking and all that stuff, shopping. I do do something. I go to the garage and get the chairs out and wipe the dust off them and the tables. I've got to pull them down from the roof. I get involved. I help out. It's my job. And it's a big deal. And I wonder, is it really worth it? I, oh, I think it is. I hope it is. I, yeah, it's, it's worth it. It is. It is. Now, this is nothing compared to how we should prepare ourselves for Jesus. Yeah, there's the hook. All right. Got you laughing with a bait, didn't I? And there's the hook. We've got to prepare ourselves for Jesus. Of course, he doesn't care whether a house is literally clean or dirty, but he does care about his home, his house, for we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. This is not... God's temple, this is God's temple. He is in each of us, those who believe. That's his home, and he cares whether it's clean or dirty. Every Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us four ways, just four, which we can be preparing ourselves, preparing our community for Jesus. First thing is he tells us to check our attitudes towards our leaders. Now, I often joke about the devil and church leadership, but it's, it's true. This is a difficult task. Without your help, it would be impossible. It just wouldn't be survivable. The second thing he takes us through is to check our relationships with each other. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Who's heard that saying before? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. It's not a saying out of the Bible. It sounds like one of Solomon's Proverbs, doesn't it? But it's not. But we do see that in the scriptures. The devil makes use of idle hands. We need to keep ourselves busy with godly relationships. The third thing he takes us through, he tells us to have a holy attitude. A Christian who remains in sadness and despair, is continually grumpy and bitter, well, you're actually breaking a commandment. You're breaking a commandment. Paul tells us to rejoice always. There's no buts, there's no ifs. We are to rejoice always, in season, out of season. Of course, there are times when we don't feel like it. But even still, we are to rejoice. It's not easy, but we're going to talk about that too. And lastly, he tells us to live in the Spirit together. No longer is the Holy Spirit just for special people. Actually, the Holy Spirit is for special people because you are special. But no longer is it for specific people at specific times for specific reasons. God's Holy Spirit is in you, in every Christian, for the purpose of sanctifying you, making you more like Christ, for building his church, building his community, and doing all the things that he teaches us about today. We better pray. Then we're going to have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, if you've got a Bible. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love. Sanctify us. Open our hearts, open our minds to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. This is the last half of the last chapter of this letter to the Thessalonians. It's actually for us all. And these are his kind of his closing remarks, kind of his summary of the whole thing. And he's teaching us again how we are to be, our relationship with God, how we're to be with each other and towards our leaders. Chapter 5, verse 12. Have a look with me. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So you're off the hook because I'm a bludger. <laughs> Check your attitudes towards your leaders. That's what he said. Respect them, love them, says Paul. Acknowledge them. Have a high regard for them and keep the peace with them, says Paul. Now, you'd think Paul was teaching us to suck eggs. Pretty obvious stuff, isn't it? Well, I don't think so, because you know what? You guys have been so horrible to me. Six years of pain and suffering, listening to it all. It's terrible. No, seriously. This convicted me somewhat this week. I often speak less favourably about our diocese our bishops, then I probably should. I even was shut down twice, not once, twice, at our last synod for saying, where are the bishops who smell of the sheep? <laughs> it's not funny. I'm breaking a command. I'm not. It might be true, but it's rude and I should repent. God's working on me, sanctifying me. Maybe you should do it a bit faster. But these are, attitudes are important for a healthy community. And church leadership is difficult. In business, and I know in business because I did that for 19 years, if there was a serious conflict between me and one of the employees, it was, it was change your behaviour or move on, wasn't it? It's move, it's my way or the highway. But in the church, this is not how it is. The goal of conflict is always restoration, never rejection. Now, that's a completely upside-down way of approaching things. It's so much harder, so much easier think I'm going to confront this person and they're going to leave. Yes, no, that can happen, and often it does, but it's not the goal. The intention is always to restore someone into the body of Christ. That's why we speak truth to them. We want to bring them in. We want to draw them in. It's harder, requires humility and a posture of love. So when Paul puts the onus, that's what you've got to do, what the disciples must do. He puts the onus on the disciples for having a high regard for their leaders, being at peace with them. So the making the pieces is on, is the onus is on, on, the, on the disciple. Well, I breathe a sigh of relief, but not so much when it comes to my own leadership. Look, I said I'm a work in progress, but with you guys, I breathe a sigh of relief that the onus is on you, at least in this context. It's a great encouragement. So often it can feel like church leadership, it's, it's kind of like to be a doormat, an easy target, a punching bag, and it's tough. But don't feel sorry for me because, not for one second, because I love what I do. And honestly, you guys are pretty great. It's not that bad at all. It's wonderful. And I rejoice in this work. Thanks, Paul. I have to rejoice. I have to rejoice. So step one, if we want a healthy church, if we want to keep our leaders, that was a kind of a passive-aggressive threat, we must, <laughs> <laughs> we 
we've got to be ready for Jesus. If you come closer, I get more cheeky. That's what happens. If you sit right at the back, I was kind of like, oh, they're not going to get that. So, yeah. First up, check your attitudes towards leaders. Secondly, we must check our relationships with each other. Verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. This is for everyone. It's not just for a disciple or a leader or a follower or whatever. It's for everyone. And he gave us, he just gave us four present, ongoing, continuous responsibilities. Four things we must be active, not passive, active in doing if we want to keep our community healthy. First thing we must do is warn the idol. Now, like I said, the devil makes use of idle hands. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. The truth is, the least engaged, even the fact that those who aren't engaged at all, the smallest givers, the least engaged, they tend to be the ones who complain the most. Am I right? Hmm. Bit loud, John, but thank you. That was a bit too, I was hoping for, no, everyone loves you guys. Everyone loves the church and its leadership, but no, I know that's not true. They're the ones Paul's suggesting we should warn, that we, together, directly, I don't hear the bad things that people say. So how do I correct them? How do I encourage them? I can't. When you hear that, then it's up to you to encourage them to point out their mistakes. That's what he is saying. Now, this is not supposed to be a kind of drag people to the principal's office kind of thing. The primary hope here, Paul's primary purpose is that we who hear what he's saying would not be thinking, oh, who, who's been saying some bad stuff about the church? I better go follow them up. It's actually for me. What have I been saying? What have I been doing? How can I be more encouraging? That's where the onus lies. Second thing we must do is encourage the disheartened. You might be forever the optimist. All power to you if you are. Wonderful, great. Be an optimist. But not everyone's wired this way. Some people are more easily discouraged. We must be gentle with them, patient with them. For there's always a place for both in the church. Now, I'm not speaking to the manic depressed, the kind of person where everything's going to fall apart, it's all doom and gloom. That person needs correcting. But we must rejoice always. Not everyone sees the sunny side right away, do they? There's a classic, you know, the first 10% of people will adopt change and embrace it and go for it. Then there's a middle 80% who will take a while and there's a 10% who will never get it. In business, you, just, you actually seek to identify the 10% who won't get it and get rid of them. That's how you do business. But not in the church. We've got to bring them along as well. That's why this is tough. Encourage the disheartened. Third thing we must do is help the weak. He's not speaking about the physically weak. That's obvious. That's assumed. That goes without saying. He's speaking about those who are weak in the spirit. Those who may be new to the faith, not yet confident to lean on the Lord as much as they should. As much as you might do. As much as others might do. And even in their apparent lack of faith, perhaps their continued sin. Even in that, we must be active in involving them bringing them into the community, being patient with them, inviting them into our lives and our homes and our events and the things we do. But there is a but. 
Um, we must assume that their weakness, their sin, their whatever they're up to, that is not going to tempt us or lead us to sin. Otherwise, get them involved. Fourth, fourth thing, we must be patient with everyone. You listening up, Ali, up the back? Oh, yeah, tears from my eyes from that one. Oh, I love it when she's in church. Patient, not just with our leaders, but patient with everyone. If we're doing these things well, then we actually can stop here. We can just go, yeah, thanks, Paul. Throw the rest of the book away. We're done. But we're not done, are we? This is God's word. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Don't forget that he started this with brothers and sisters. He's only speaking to Christians, believers in the church. So if someone who's not a Christian treats you in any of these ways, none of this applies. None of it applies. We're to turn the cheek, other cheek, go the extra mile, love, forgive, all that stuff. This is just for us Christians. The old way was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So this is somewhat a radical suggestion, isn't it? But other than that, I'm not going to preach it because I don't need to. I just quote Jesus. Jesus says this well. He says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Our job as Christians is to make God look good. That's all we've got to remember. That's it. Our walk on this earth is just simply a matter, just put our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationship through that filter. If God was watching, would others, people think he looks good? If people looked on and saw what we were up to, would they then think, oh, that person knows a good God. That's our job as Christians, make God look good. Does a short fuse and a lack of patience make God look good? Does undermining leadership make God look good? Undermining leadership is the quickest and the easiest and the most effective way to destroy a church. Like, if you want to destroy the church, go for it. That's how you do it. It's quick and easy. Now you know the secret. So if you're not happy, that's what you do. It's easy. Which leads us to our third point. We must have a holy attitude. First things first, our attitude, our joy, it doesn't spring from our circumstances, but from Christ himself. Our joy comes from the Holy Spirit living within. That's where it comes from. This kind of knowledge of an eternity with God. We draw on so many different things that Christ died for us, that we are so valuable that the creator of the universe was prepared to get on the cross and die for us. The shame and the suffering, he did it for us. This, we, we draw hope from that. We, we, we're special, we're important. We have a knowledge of eternity. Christ will return, set things right. I'm often asked, I'm always asked, why does God allow suffering? Why does a good God let us suffer? I have no good answer, but I know he will fix it. He will set it right. And we will know the reason why. Verse 16, though. Remember that Paul is commanding us. So this is not playtime this morning. He's not mucking around. It matters. If we want to have an attractive community, then we need to listen to what he says. Darius had a godly community. Maybe turn to the person next to you and say, you're good looking. 
you're good looking. And then turn to your other choice who's not as good looking, tell them they're good looking too. This is a good start to this verse, isn't it? Rejoice always. Fun fact, these two words are the shortest verse in the entire Greek, in the Greek New Testament, right? Rejoice always. That's it. That's all we need. Rejoice always. Then he says, pray continually. Now, the same Greek word here, this continually, this pray continually, is used of a hacking cough. A hacking cough. It's kind of like that. It's, you can't help it. You've got to get it out. It's necessary. It's continuous. It's just ongoing and it's got to come. So as we're saying, like, pray like a hacking cough. That doesn't sound very godly, does it? <laughs> Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These are not suggestions. They're not even recommendations. They are commands. These are the bedrock, the foundation of a healthy faith, besides, of course, Christ himself. Now, let me share a true story. Now, this story comes out of the Alpha Course. I don't think it's in the latest version of the Alpha Course, but it was in one of the older ones, and it's, it's important. It's a long quote. It's a bit of a long story. Apologise if you heard it before, but I share it because I honestly don't have anything in my life that I could really share on anything like what, the, what people really go through. I live a very protected life, very straightforward. Not even my parents' divorce as a teenager. Not even seeing my wife dragged away, strapped down actually, and taken away in an ambulance, not even knowing her name or any of the kids or my names, and then spending all time time. Not even any of that. Right? None of that. That I manage. That hasn't taken my joy. But when I read this story about a concentration camp in the Second World War, I wonder if I could do it. Not sure I could. So I want to read this one to you. It's a long quote. At Ravensbrook concentration camp during the Second World War, Corrie Tam Boom and her sister Betsy lived in terrible conditions. At this labour camp, they were crammed into sleeping barracks with three beds on top of one another, made of hay. These conditions, as well as the lack of basic sanitation, led to a thriving place for lice and fleas. And if that wasn't enough, next to where Corey and Betsy were staying was located the punishment barracks. All day long and often long into the night, terrible sounds of cruelty was heard. For every day that passed by, new things were added to the list of things that didn't make sense. Corey wondered how they could really endure such an awful place. Betsy prayed and reminded her sister what they had read that morning. Give thanks in all circumstances. They started to list the things they could give thanks for. They thanked God for the Bible that they had managed to smuggle in. They even gave thanks for the packed room they lived in. After mentioning several things to be thankful for, Betsy said, thank you for the fleas. Really? Corey wondered how she could be thankful for a flea. Well, several weeks later, one of the supervisors was called to their barracks to settle some issues. However, the supervisor refused to enter because the place was full of fleas. This is why they had so much freedom in their barrack. Freedom to pray, freedom to read the Bible, freedom to teach about Jesus to their entire barrack. Because of all the fleas and the lice, neither the supervisors or the guards wanted to be in their barracks. This is when Corey realised that she could be thankful even for a flea. 
What a powerful story, huh? Just a reminder of how we Christians are to face adversary, adversity. And just the resilience that God puts in our hearts to get through stuff. We're to give thanks for all things. We're to rejoice in all things. All things can be used by God for our good. This is the ultimate Christian attitude, isn't it? Now, nobody's saying it's easy. Nobody's saying an attitude like this is, is, is easy. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. It's real. We can overcome anything, even death itself. It's not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is what God offers for those who love him. Resilience, a hope beyond understanding, and an ability to be thankful and rejoice even in the worst of times. Wow. Paul's final exhortation is how we can prepare ourselves and our community for Christ. His last one, number four, was living in the Spirit together. And there's three things here. Firstly, celebrate spiritual gifts, reject evil, keep growing. From verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. I think everything he said here today is for this very reason. Attitudes, actions, contrary to what he's teaching, will quench the Spirit. They'll quench the Spirit in the church, quench the Spirit in our own lives. And with the Spirit shut down, remember the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters. It's the Creator. It went out and created, was the one who created everything. He's the one who transforms, renews, sanctifies us we quench that spirit then we become stagnant miracles in the church stop people stop coming to faith and the church dies so this really matters so verse 20 do not treat prophecies with contempt but test them all hold on to what is good reject every kind of evil in Nicky Gumbel's Bible in one year, he suggests, and I agree with him, that there are five good... Actually, I'm going to come up with a sixth one, so get ready for that. But we come up with seven, didn't we? There's other ways. But he comes up with five good ways that we can know that God is guiding us, speaking to prophecy, speaking of this action of the Spirit in our lives. This is our workshop. Did you know we, we, this is a supernatural faith? You guys believe in, like, crazy stuff? A virgin birth and... Angels in the sky talking to shepherds. Did you, did you hear the Christmas story? This is a supernatural faith. We have a supernatural God who acts in and with and through us. Anyway, I'm getting carried away because this is great. Five things. First one is commanding scripture. We can know God's guiding us. Maybe we're thinking God's saying, do this or do that or go here or go there. These are ways we can do it. And he might not use all of them, but he'll definitely use the first one. The, God, the Bible is God's primary way of revealing to us what he wants us to do. It's pretty easy. Should I go kill my neighbour? No. I don't need to wait on the Spirit to tell me not to do that because it's written in God's word. Thou shalt not kill. So the Bible is our primary way. And remember, John's Gospel starts, Jesus is the word. Jesus was with God. He is the word. So this is Jesus in kind of Jesus is coming out of these pages. God's revealing himself to us. It's our number one go-to place. And we can be sure that God will never contradict himself. God, should I sleep with my neighbour? No. God's not going to say yes to that because it's a contradiction to his word. So it's easy. 
Bible gives us number one way. Second way is the compelling spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. Remember your temple of the Holy Spirit in you, changing you, growing you. Woo. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. So the more we read God's word, because Jesus is the word, the more we're going to know his voice. With that training, with that time, with that discernment, we can start to distinguish the difference because I don't know about you, maybe I'm admitting I'm a bit crazy, but there's more than one voice in here. <laughs> Anyone else got more than one voice in here? There's more than one voice in here. We've got to be able to tell a difference, haven't we, between the voices of the world, the voices of our own conscience, and the whispers of the Holy Spirit. Now I can count on one hand, maybe two, maybe two, how many times I've heard the Holy Spirit speak. That's just not how God tends to communicate, at least not with me. Maybe he does with you. For me, most often, God speaks through images. So I'll be praying for someone. I'll have some vivid, full-colour image of something. And I'll share it. But even still, I'll never say this is from God. Because who am I? I'm just me. Could have been some bad cheese last night. Who knows? And normally I say, this is something, could be helpful, could be not, leave it with the person. Quite often they'll say, yeah, that answers this, this and this. Sometimes it'll be nothing. Trust it to God. The third way we know that God is speaking to us is the counsel of saints. And this is far more important than I think we give it credit for. Do other mature Christians agree with us that this is where God is sending us, what God is calling us to do? Use your brothers and sisters in Christ to discern God's will. Because they have the spirit in them too. And we can get it wrong. We can get it wrong. And the fourth way we can know that God's speaking to us is common sense. Does it make sense? Of course, sometimes, sadly, often, mostly, God tends to tell us stuff that we think is really hard, <laughs> difficult. Perhaps we think it isn't possible, but it's always reasonable purpose here is don't check your brain at the door. Don't check your brain at the door. If someone's telling you something that God might have said, God can tell you too. And in my experience, he does. Last one. Circumstantial signs. Every time God has given me something important to do that's going to affect kind of my whole family, he will do it in a number of ways. One way you can be sure he'll do it is he'll tell my wife as well. Yeah. He'll tell her as well. I remember when I told her, oh, hon, I think God's calling me to become a minister. She looks at me and goes, oh, about time. <laughs> God told her first, but don't tell her. <laughs> Let's wrap up the passage. Verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Did you notice that last bit? You thought it was up to you, didn't you? You thought it was all hard. I have to work hard and do this stuff. No, no, no. He will do it. It's God's responsibility. It's his work. So to explain this, I need to give us three religious words. Grace. Pretty easy. 
Grace. If I put them on the screen, I'm like, I do too. Grace is an undeserved gift. See, we're the body of Christ. Harry just reminded me there was another slide. We do this together. How good is that? Grace is an undeserved gift, something we don't deserve. Justification is the act of God forgiving our sin because we love and trust. We have faith in Jesus, right? That's sanctification. And the third, that's justification, sorry. And sanctification, the third one. That's the process. We might become a Christian today, but God's not done with us yet, thankfully, because some of you are horrible. God's not done with us. It takes time. We've got to keep on the path, changing, growing. That's sanctification. So the moment you're justified, you're saved, heaven is for you. That's it. It's done. It's a done deal. God trusts you and loves you that much. He's going to give you heaven before you've even done one thing for him, for his kingdom. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's like giving your kids their pocket money before they do their chores. I mean, not happening, is it? But that's what God does. That's because he loves us. He knows us. He treats us how we are going to be and not how we are. And there's a leadership lesson in that too. So that's sanctification, process of God changing us to be more like Jesus. So Paul's saying this, we must do our part, of course, but the God who justifies by grace, so he saves us by grace, a free gift, he sanctifies us by grace as well. Get it? He saves us as a free gift, but grows us, changes us, enables us to do his work, and that's a gift as well. It's not a chore, it's a gift. That's pretty cool. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve this wonderful community and what comes from this. But God blesses us nonetheless because that's what he's like. What have we discovered? Firstly, check our attitudes towards our leaders. This is for me too. Leadership is a difficult task. Without your help, it's not survivable. It can't be done. Not to mention that undermining leadership has destroyed a great many churches. Number two is check our relationships with each other. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Get busy. Get involved. If you feel the need to complain... Oh, don't. No. If you feel the need to complain... I want to hear what you've got to say. That's important. But check your involvement. Have you got skin in the game? Complaints and accusations change nothing unless you've got skin in the game. It's really a cheap shot, isn't it? If you want self-help, you know how much I love self-help, be the change you want to see. Put that on a postcard. Be the change you want to see. Third thing, he tells us to have a holy attitude. An attitude of gratitude while we're at it. I can put all these up. Rejoice always. But there's a, and there's no but, there's no ifs. We just rejoice always. I raise my hands in worship even when I don't feel like it. And that's key. You don't have to raise your hands, but I do. Even when I don't feel like it. And you know what? When I raise my hands and I don't feel like it, Within a, few, within a minute, I feel like it. It's one of the foundations of our faith. And like Corey and, Bet and Betsy, we can only do it with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's the only way it's possible. And the last thing he told us to live in the Spirit together. 
Now, spiritual gifts, prophetic words are all good things. This is a supernatural faith. God works supernaturally through us, but it needs proper checks and balances. So let's not ignore the work of the Spirit amongst us. I feel like many of us, we're afraid to speak what we think God might be saying to us. And the church is all the poorer for it. We need the Spirit working in us. We need to be able to verbalise this so we know God's will. Because it's not just up to me, it's up to all of us together. We are the body of Christ. Now, Nikki should have added number six, remember, in the ways God guides us, the way he helps us. See, the vision, the plan, when the prophet comes into the church and suggests this or that, or God's doing this or that, the plan always involves the speaker too. And this is where the rubber hits the road. The prophets in the Bible suffered greatly for their messages. They suffered with and for and instead of the people at times. It's no difference today. Prophets have skin in the day, game. And over the last six years, we have had plenty come and go. Because that's exactly what false prophets do. They come and they go. The real prophets, the true prophets, are sitting in all the pews here right now. You've got skin in the game. True prophets invest and they stay. It matters. If you really thought God was speaking to you, would you leave? Let me think about that for a second. God was really telling you this or that, would you leave? Or would you get involved? Help bring it to be. Lastly, this is a body. I don't have all the answers. Need you. I need the Spirit of Christ in you. I need to hear how God's speaking to you, working through you, what He's doing in your life. This encourages us. Together, we can then discern the will of God for this church. It's a together thing. That's what 1 Thessalonians is wrapping us up for. Take heart. Speak the truth in love. Correct those who are idle. And pray like a hacking cough. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love. Pour your spirit upon us. Come, Lord Jesus. Remind us of your love and your hope and your joy. Use us to build your church, to grow your community, to draw people into the faith. Help us do it with integrity and love and the truth that you've put in us. Amen.